HIV AIDS has reached an existential moment. As COVID-19 continues to pose geopolitical risks, there is a threat that the progress made over the past 40 years in the fight to end the AIDS pandemic will be undone. COVID-19 has exacerbated social and economic inequalities, placed further stress on weak health systems, and highlighted the urgent need to strengthen global health security. In managing these dual pandemics, the global health community must adapt, protect, and integrate approaches to sustain momentum toward ending HIV-AIDS while continuing to respond to COVID-19. In this podcast, we speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress toward reaching the new targets outlined in the 2021 Political Declaration on HIV and AIDS, the current geopolitical climate, why it is important to continue prioritizing HIV-AIDS, and what can be done to strengthen health security in low- and middle-income countries. This is AIDS Existential Moment. Hello, I'm Jeff Sturgio, a senior associate at the Global Health Policy Center of CSIS. I'm pleased to join Emily Bass for a conversation today about her new book on the history of PEPFAR, uh, titled To End a Plague. Emily has spent more than 20 years writing about and working on HIV-AIDS in America and East and Southern Africa. Her writing has appeared in many publications, including the Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Esquire, The Lancet, Ms. N Plus One, Out, Pause, and probably others I haven't mentioned. And she's also received notable mention in Best American Essays. Emily's a lifelong social justice activist, and she served as an external expert for the World Health Organization and is a member of the What Would an HIV Doula Do Collective. She's been a Fulbright journalism scholar in Uganda and received scholarships from the Norman Mailer Writers Colony and the Vermont Studio Center and was the 2018-2019 Martin Duberman Visiting Research Fellow at the New York Public Library. To End a Plague, her book on America's War on AIDS in Africa was published by Public Affairs Press in July. Reviewers have called it timely, vivid, very, very helpful, crucial, and essential. We should all be so lucky as to write books that gain that kind of response. Emily's book is all of those things and a captivating read. I'm delighted to welcome her to the podcast. Well, To End a Plague chronicles the transnational activism, legislative deal-making, and unprecedented political leadership that led to President George W. Bush's 2003 announcement of a program known as the U.S. President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. Today, PEPFAR is one of America's most successful long-term pandemic-fighting programs. With more than $85 billion invested, 18.2 million men, women, and children treated with antiretroviral therapy, and more than 50 million people provided HIV prevention services in recent years, it's also the largest commitment in history by any nation to address a major disease, a single disease. Recent analysis by the Kaiser Family Foundation has shown that PEPFAR has had a remarkable impact on health outcomes, leading to a 20% decline in all-cause mortality in countries where the program has operated. So that gives us a pretty clear indication of just how important PEPFAR has been to global health. So Emily, let's start with an open-ended question. PEPFAR's history is complex. Your book captures the story in a compelling way. So tell us about some of the key factors in PEPFAR's history and origins and what drew you to this story in the first place. 
Thanks so much, Jeff. And it's so delightful to be in conversation with you. And thanks for that introduction. PEPFAR's history is complex. And and what drew me to telling the story relates to my involvement in in one of the factors that impelled this action. And, And there are three, really. You have a powerful, mobilized transnational activist movement that has a long history that starts with HIV AIDS being recognized, um, named as an epidemic, named as an epidemic in gay men, and then later in hemophiliacs and heroin users. There was labeling of Haitians as a risk group, but really an American, I'm American, so I'm going to tell a little bit from the American perspective, an American epidemic that that is ignored by the government for years, and that in the face of that silence and denial, you have immense community mobilization communities of care, communities of self-taught research analysts, communities of activists taking to the streets in protest and demanding that the government respond and demanding that resources be allocated and demanding that health justice be a reality for all, including people living with HIV. I enter in the mid-90s, so I actually began working in this field a couple of weeks after the first protease drug was licensed. I sort of deduced that after the fact, but the point at which I entered as a young science writer and AIDS activist, the third drug in sort of triple combination therapy, protease inhibitors, had been identified. And it changed HIV from a life sentence into a chronic disease mm. for people who could access those medications. Then the question becomes, why do some people have the drugs and why do other people not have the drugs? Really compressing the history that's told in the book, you have a variety of groups coming to the conclusion that the answer cannot be These drugs aren't affordable and aren't feasible in low and middle income countries. And three different groups kind of come to this conclusion, at least three. But transnational activists led by people living with HIV in all of the countries in the world and in the countries where there is no access to HIV medications and in the countries where, like Thailand and Brazil, where the governments are able to make or import drugs, allies in America come to this conclusion. So does a robust community of Christian conservatives and evangelicals who really are hearing from missionaries as they're coming back or following this issue are being brought on AIDS safaris, you know, sort of trips overseas. Um, and they're seeing the devastation of HIV AIDS in congregations and in families, and they are mobilized. And they're talking to their representatives, to Jesse Helms, to other senators, to other congresspeople and saying, you have to pay attention to this. And then you have At the point that this story picks up, you have another really important set of actors, and those are people in the West Wing in the Oval Office of the George W. Bush White House. And and President Bush also decides that it is, in fact, unconscionable and unacceptable to not take substantial action. Right. So you basically have and that's a really reductive and and one could certainly insert many players Mm -hmm. into that. But essentially, you have transnational activism on the left and anti-globalization, you know, very ambitious activist movement. You have Christian conservatives. You have a real bipartisan, you know, consensus, if you will, at least in terms of how left right politics played out in the U.S., and then you have a president who wants to do something. And those three things together with a lot of antecedents and a lot of work on many different fronts, but those three things make it possible for George Bush in 2003 at his January 28th State of the Union to announce the largest disease-specific effort in history. It's been compared to the Marshall Plan as one of the most effective pieces of foreign aid we've ever implemented. 
having come up through the activist piece of this as a journalist and writer observer, when this was announced, I wanted to see what happened next. And <laughs> this book is what I found. Well, of course, your the book opens with your recounting George Bush giving that uh, that State of the Union address and your reactions to it at the time. What you just said reminds me of the old cliche that politics makes strange bedfellows, yeah. because uh, it would have been hard to predict that that coalition of interests would come together in the way that it did. And the fact that it was a presidential initiative signals the kind of political capital it was required to really go from an idea to bring it into reality. So how did the White House establish the program and navigate the process of congressional authorization and approval? You know, and how has PEPFAR maintained such an improbable and long-standing level of bipartisan support? It's a great question, and I'm glad that you you mentioned that what's what's incredible is both strange bedfellows then and strange bedfellows now, and it is PEPFAR's continuity is is part of what I think we need to study and understand at this moment that we're at the very beginning of of another yet another global pandemic that that is riddled with inequity in access that is riddled with north south challenges that has many of the same issues. We've been fighting this for for decades. What can we learn? And what can we learn from a U.S. commitment that really was sustained by these strange bedfellows, this bipartisan support? The thing to understand, a couple things to, to think about in terms of how this came to be. One is that by the time that President Bush and his advisors decide to move forward with, with a large-scale bilateral U.S. initiative, there is growing consensus that, that something must be done. Kofi Annan is called, the then U.N. Secretary General, has, again, with a lot of the same forces, activist forces, academics, public health and human rights leaders, people living with HIV, saying this is unconscionable. Millions of people have HIV, millions are dying, and only only the wealthy, only the lucky have access to these drugs. How can we how can we let this be? And the answer is we can't. And so one of the answers that's posited, one of the solutions is a global war chest. Kofi Annan calls for a global war chest, and that becomes the global fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And it's a multilateral mechanism where countries and philanthropies are going to put in their money and countries will submit proposals that the country has developed in a very consultative manner, and they'll get funded. And the Global Fund also persists to this day and is incredibly important. You have, as his staffers refer to him sometimes, you have in the White House, um, the MBA president. And he's come in with very specific ideas about wanting to change foreign aid and wanting to tie aid to impact. And as have his advisors, particularly Gary Edson, who also helped lead and ideate um, the creation of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. There's enormous amount of, of innovation that happens in the foreign aid space during George W. Bush's presidency. And it's really focused, for better or for worse, and that's a whole other conversation mm -hmm. about, you know, aid and impact and aid effectiveness, but very much focused on impact. And there is a feeling that if you want to have impact, you need to have a real control over the design. And there's also the reality that political forces that are the political will for a massive investment is likely going to be tied to the degree of U.S. control. So if you're saying, let's put millions or billions of dollars into a global fund, you're going to hear, and they did hear, I have the faxes from the Bush Library mm -hmm. archives, the faxes from the Eagle Forum and Phyllis Schlafly, you know, any multilateral fund is going to be a slush fund for North Korea and Planned Parenthood. So multilateral mechanisms are leaky. They're going to pay for things that conservatives don't like. A bilateral mechanism for an initiative that has bipartisan support. That's something that can work. What's then remarkable and really notable, and we need to sort of remember this now as we apply history to the present, is that Bush doesn't just say, tell me 
what size of a check I should write. He assembles a team and it's all done in complete secrecy so that nobody's trying to put their fingerprints on it, led by Dr. Tony Fauci and then with the assistance of Mark Dybul. And they essentially go out and gather every shred of data they can on what is possible in terms of scaling up AIDS treatment. And they're asking people who know something is up, right? They know something's going on because they're getting asked for data, you know, repeatedly. No one knows entirely what's going on. And they they come back several times and their tires get kicked. And Gary Edson and the other folks in the Jay Lefkowitz and Kristen Silverberg and Josh Bolton are looking at these proposals and saying, you know, is this going to hold water? Can this work? Not out of a desire to derail it because they really want to deliver something that's going to have impact. And they do. They deliver a plan that has targets and a budget. They deliver three scenarios, sort of high end, middle end and low end. And the president opts for the for the high end. And I think a large part of that is because there was real intention and scientific rigor put into a design that tied investments to impacts. This is how you'll know you're getting your money's worth. And again, that is sort of the price of that money is a degree of U.S. bilateral control. It also got us $15 billion to fight global AIDS. And of course, that's uh, and that amount of money has grown over the years because that initial focus on uh, on having impact and metrics and being able to show exactly what the money was doing was so important. But at the same time, you know, as this idea, this big idea was being translated into a reality through the work of Edson and the rest of the team in, in the White House or working through the White House, it wasn't inevitable that PEPFAR would end up looking the way that it did in practice. And that's where I'd like to come back to where you started with the, uh, the activist community. And, you know, tell us about the contributions that people living with HIV and their allies and advocates made to shaping the structure of PEPFAR. You know, has it addressed the needs of those who are infected and at risk? Has it been shaped by a sense of what those living with the disease saw as the key priorities? And I'm sure it was, uh, you know, a creative tension between those interests and what others running the program felt. But just talk to us a little bit more about the early uh, stages of, of the evolution of the program and what role the community had in, in helping to make sure that it met their needs. So one of one of the um, crucial contributions, if you, if you were to pull the authorizing legislation, so the law that enacts PEPFAR, mm-hmm. can be found in a set of asterisks. So Bush's State of the Union is quoted. And in his State of the Union, where he calls for this plan, he names a price of about a dollar a day you know, roughly $300 a year for antiretrovirals. And that call to action is quoted in the authorizing legislation, and that price is redacted. So there are asterisks mm-hmm. in the legislation. The lawmakers did not put that price in. That that was a price for generic medications. The ability to say with $15 billion, we can treat over five years, we can treat 2 million people. And of course, PEPFAR met and exceeded its targets for treatment every year, year on year to this day with at some point, flat funding starting in 2009, 2010. But the reason that even that large amount of money can pay for that amount of treatment is because the prices come down. And the prices come down because of activists. They come down because of activists making it impossible to continue to maintain brand name pricing. They bring in generic competition. They push at the trade-related intellectual property agreements that limit and restrict compulsory licensing and parallel importing, which are these technical pieces that unfortunately many of us have had to come to understand either then or now in the context of COVID, they really give countries the right to make the essential medications to treat epidemics. So the prices come down. And that's, that is part of the history in this book, and it's well told in other places, but it's an activist movement that demands access and demands affordable medications. So that's that's a piece of it. 
The other piece of it, you know, I think this question about what was the structure and its approach and how was it shaped? I, what was what is amazing about PEPFAR and what's amazing about activism that works within systems and within bureaucracies after you fought the fight, after you've gotten the drugs, after you've gotten the program, is that activists remain, people living with HIV remain. They remain because they're receiving services and providing services, of course, but they also remain to watchdog and to demand to have a say in how things are being run. And and Global Fund was from the outset far more open and far more collaborative. And PEPFAR was for several years run out of embassies which were which were fortresses. This is sort of post, you know, terrorist attacks in in Kenya and Tanzania. So they really are literally fortresses and you can't get in and you're not seeing the plans. And people living with HIV said you can't program in our country with a, you know, with a slide deck that tells you, you know, what you plan for the year. You just can't do it. And and demanded access to country operational plans. And of course, the heads of PEPFAR, who are themselves activists, who are, you know, activists are not only people in the mm-hmm. streets, you know, realize that it's incredibly important to to work with community and work with civil society. And so this program opens up, this program begins to share its data, this program begins to share its operational plans. Ambassador Eric Goosby helps that happen. Ambassador Debbie Burks helps that happen. And it happens because the activists never stop asking, right? Mm-hmm. And because they can show the evidence that their their ideas, that community source solutions for whether it's a design of a prevention program or a treatment program or a violence and stigma reduction program, that they are still, we are still the people that are solving these problems every day in our communities. Yeah. No, I just wanted to make one parenthetical comment about what you're saying about the imperative to make sure that PEPFAR was using generic drugs and keeping the prices of medicines as low as possible. You know, at the time that that was happening, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, and I can just tell from my tell you from my own experience, the administration came to us at the company I worked for and other companies and said, you know, we have to find ways to make these drugs more accessible to people. And uh, two of the things that they did, and uh, you know, you allude to this in the book, are when Tommy Thompson was the head of HHS. They implemented a tentative approval process through the FDA so the generic medicines could get FDA approval, and that would ensure or reassure the U.S. that they were using high-quality medicines and, and spending money for that. And also another thing that came about, and this is something when Mark Dybul was in, involved, he was very active in bringing companies together with other experts in government and from civil society to think about pediatric formulations. And also around that same time, there was a push from HHS to get companies together to put combination therapies in place and get those approved rapidly so that that would help improve the efficiency of ARVs. So it really, uh, you know, that's a way in which the pressure from the community manifested itself in the way in which uh, the U.S. government was then approaching other stakeholders, in this case, the pharmaceutical industry, to do more. But, you know, I want to come back, though, to what you're saying about the community, because one of the most fascinating and novel aspects of the book, I think, is that you don't just tell the story of PEPFAR from inside the Beltway. You know, you actually went to live in Uganda to understand the impact of PEPFAR on the lives of those who were to be its beneficiaries. So how did those experiences and encounters shape your understanding of PEPFAR, both its successes and challenges? So we moved to Uganda in 2004. And I said I wanted to see, I said in my Fulbright application that I wanted to see what it looked like when the world changed. And one of the first things you realize most of the time is is the world actually doesn't look any different than it did the day before. You know, I had to go looking for, you know, I didn't, and I'd, I'd been to Uganda several times by that time. But 
you know, it didn't look any different when I moved into the flat on McCary campus than it had the last times that I'd been there. So my plan was to sit in clinics and to sit in clinics around the country that had different approaches to delivering services. And that's what I did. And the first thing I realized after realizing that the world doesn't totally change you know, visibly is that the clinics were really different and they were different depending on who was operating them. And that actually U.S. agencies have identities as specific as fingerprints, which, you know, anybody working within PEPFAR would have laughed that this was like my big reveal, you know, (laughs) like, you know, you probably, anyone, if I'd asked, but wow, USAID and CDC are really different. And for me as an American, and an activist who had, you know, argued that that this kind of foreign aid, which is also arguing for a certain kind of presence, or the result of these arguments is a certain kind of presence in these countries, was really interested. What does it mean that we don't actually have a PEPFAR program? We have an umbrella, but we have USAID, CDC, Department of Defense, Peace Corps, really doing very different things sometimes, having very different approaches. And, and it seems wonky, Jeff. This is where I, I it can get a little weedsy. But but if we want to understand what a COVID response looks like, if we want to understand what Ebola looks like, we have to understand that any public health response has to solve for what they call this whole of government response, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's on the government agency side is really understanding what does it look like. And PEPFAR um, is is has not solved the problems, but it is it is not a terrible workaround for really enduring some valuable and some damaging differences between those agencies. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is that I I met nurses. I had friends, people living with HIV who I knew before and families that I came to know while I was there and scientists and researchers. And, and there's a few things that shape the book. And, and one is seeing the enormous resilience and determination of people on the receiving end of you know, foreign aid and investments, but also working within a government system that wasn't totally committed to health and well-being for people, finding ways every single day to keep trying to move the dial towards health and justice for all. And that immense determination that nurses that I visited 15 years ago are still in the same clinic that I went to that has, you know, roughly the same level of supplies and, and the physicians that started programs are still leading them. And then also for the people that, that are in deep poverty, the pill that prevents them from dying of AIDS does not change their lives. Mm. That there are many, many other things. For young women, it's contraception, it's sexual and reproductive health and rights programs, it's gender equity, it's it's, you know, the right to love who you want to and live with the gender expression you want to. And so these pills stop people from dying, but they also left us with all of us. I don't have HIV, but I should but but people living with HIV with with and allies with a world of other issues we need to address. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, of course, the treatment action campaign in South Africa made use of, uh, of a t-shirt that uh, just said HIV positive, which, you know, when Nelson Mandela wore that, that, yeah. that sent a very powerful signal. And, and in a way you could say we're all HIV positive yeah. from the impact of the, of the epidemic. But it, it, you know, I was touched by the parts of the book where you talked about the relationships you had with people, with some of these determined and and uh, resilient people who were living in that in, in that environment every day. I mean, some of them I knew as well from my own experiences in in working on HIV policy over the years, and it really rings true from the you know the folks who I knew. Your description of them and, and what they were doing was uh, was really important. And you know, in fact, the whole book is richly textured in that way and very dense and and packed with information. You know. 
And uh, the experiences that you reflect and you know the stories you tell really bring people to life on its pages. But I think one area I wanted to just move to for a minute is, you know, PEPFAR is so complex and variegated a program that it's hard to cover everything. And your book is not a, a short book either. So it's but one area I thought you might have developed further was the role of the private sector in, in PEPFAR's history. And of course, that's changed over time, too. You know, we spoke a few minutes ago about the obvious connection to procurement and deployment of antiretroviral treatments, which, of course, you did cover in the book. But PEPFAR also had a strategy of private sector engagement that led to hundreds of partnerships with private sector actors, large and small. You know, that included uh, everything from large multinational companies to implementing NGOs in the countries where PEPFAR was was operating. And two of the most important of those partnerships envelop, uh, involved developing the supply chain to ensure that medicines got to those who needed them. That was the partnership for supply chain management and also building the laboratory capacity to enable PEPFAR and its implementing partners and governments to conduct the laboratory tests required to expand prevention, care, and treatment to millions so what did you see of those partnerships as you worked on the book and, and uh, you know, explored uh, what was happening in Uganda, for instance? How would you characterize the contribution of the private sector at all levels to PEPFAR's success? You know, first of all, just on, on supply chain management, there are many things that you sort of delve into as a writer that only you really want to geek out on. And, and I, you know, so SCMS, you know, is, is the largest peacetime contract that was ever awarded in, in U.S. history. And, and what was done to solve the problem of procuring and then moving medications to the places they need to be. I think the flap copy for the book describes it that this is a moonshot. And I've gotten some, some pushback on that. And I, one of the things I think about when I sort of pushback on the pushback is, no, a moonshot literally is an enormous logistical operation. I mean, the number of things you have to solve and the number of moving pieces, this is not a matter of sort of beneficently kind of airdropping medications. And so SCMS is huge. And, and you know, if I had more time, I would have written a longer book, not a shorter <laughs> book, as the saying goes. So, so absolutely. You know, I think where we put emphasis, the private sector also came in and did some really innovative things in a very important program called Dreams that was launched by Ambassador Debbie Burke. So Determined, Resilient, Empowered, Mentored, and Safe, which is really the first time that, that PEPFAR takes on um, adolescent girls' enormous risk enormous and persistent risk. Dreams launches in 2014. And there are private sector partnerships that are really important. And so throughout, you do have roles that are being played that are really crucial. I think that where, as you mentioned earlier, where we see government going to private sector and saying, can you you know, help us with a solution? Can we try to find a way to bring prices down? Can we get fixed dose combinations, can we get blister packs and all the things that are happening early on because of this demand for generics, there is the presence of activism and there is the presence of post-country demand or country demand saying we need these kinds of solutions and we need to hold accountable industries and entities that are not used to being held accountable necessarily. So to me, where the investment and the intervention is most successful is where it's in a matrix of accountability. And that is, that's really how we have to think about this. We need all the players. We need the private sector, the public sector, the philanthropic sector, but we need a matrix of accountability. And so what I rendered, what you're talking about is the matrix, you know, and these forces, and then within it, the private sector is operating. But, but um, the longer form version of that might be your book. <laughs> Well, we'll see about that. But I think, um, you know, your point about SCMS is, is really important. I, you know, one of the things that I think is true when you look at those years, first of all, unless you knew something about just how chaotic drug distribution was in Africa before PEPFAR, and then see how PEPFAR and the supply chain management partnership 
brought a completely new level of uh, coherence and efficiency and uh, system to uh, the distribution of antiretroviral treatments and other commodities that were used by, by PEPFAR and its partners. It's just like night and day. And when you also look at the amount of money that PEPFAR was bringing to this, tens of billions of dollars, plus the global funds, tens of billions of dollars, I think it's not too much to say that those the impact of those changes led to the development of a viable market for antiretrovirals in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's why you got um, you know, prices for medicines actually got below the $1 a day to now it's you know, on the order of $100 a day for therapy. It may even be less now. I, uh, I haven't been following the most recent uh, changes, but, but that's an enormous change because when this started, the price of antiretroviral therapy in Western countries was $10,000 a year, and now it's just literally hundreds of dollars a year. And that's what, by having a viable marketplace now, it also becomes sustainable. And I think that's one of the major long-term changes that came from the work that PEPFAR and the Global Fund together did. Just to add, you know, competition is key to a marketplace. So what you had to bring the prices down is the entrance of generic drugs at much lower prices. So so it's not just a marketplace, it's also competition because prices are set where the market will bear. And so you, the generic competition is absolutely essential to that story. Yeah, yeah. No, it, uh, that's true. And I, you know, the point I'm just trying to make is that we tend to think of AIDS exceptionalism but actually, when you analyze what happened in the market for antiretroviral therapies, you can explain it by the usual operation of the laws of supply and demand and competition. And, you know, and until you had the kind of resources that were available and the sort of uh, framework that the supply chain management system provided, you wouldn't have been able to get the kind of widespread distribution of, of medicines that eventually we saw. But that, you know, I don't want to geek out. As you said before, we could spend a lot of time. We could spend a lot of time, but, and, and, you know, anyone who writes a 400 page book likes to have the last word. So I will just say <laughs> that, you know, in, in 2001, when they're debating the terms of the, you know, at the UN General Assembly special session on AIDS, the first special session mm -hmm. to be held on a disease, the U.S. government, the same government that's going to back PEPFAR, that's going to launch PEPFAR is opposed to bulk procurement mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So and that the activist pressure and again making the impossible inevitable is not normal laws of supply and demand. There's a lot happening that brings bulk procurement about. But I would love though I would love activism and social justice to be a part of the market. So yeah, yeah well we can. So we'll have another podcast. Exactly, on, on we'll do that. Issues. We'll do that next. But, but what, off you go. But in the time we we have left, Emily, let's turn to what lessons we can learn from PEPFAR's history for the present moment when the world's grappling with the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, you alluded to this earlier in our conversation, but you know what lessons do you think PEPFAR offers for how to organize the global COVID-19 response? What about lessons, not just what to do, but what not to do? And of course, the HIV AIDS pandemic isn't over. As we know from a recent Global Fund report, COVID-19 has disrupted the provision of care and treatment in many ways. Now, PEPFAR has already addressed some of these challenges as it's been thinking about its new 2025 strategy, you know, including addressing both the short and long-term impact of COVID on PEPFAR and the HIV response, accelerating progress toward epidemic control, even though we have a context of flat funding, achieving the optimal mix of services provided, population served, and geographies targeted. And among the other objectives and challenges are supporting and strengthening community-led responses and, and sustainability, and placing this in the framework of a broader global health security agenda. So those are some of the challenges that PEPFAR has already identified. But 
you know, do you think there are priorities that are missing? You know, will we see convergence or divergence between PEPFAR and the broader uh, global health security agenda in the coming years? What are your insights now, having done so much work on understanding why PEPFAR succeeded? What can we learn from that? It's a great question. I think that, you know, PEPFAR was started at a moment that HIV was seen as a health security issue. And it became, as a result of massive investment and all of the work we talked about, it became a humanitarian issue. And there's a, there's a theorist and social scientist, Andrew Lakoff, who has this term conceptual mutation, right? So we, by our effective responses, change security threats into humanitarian issues. So right now, at a moment when we are building a health security agenda, um, and I say we, the U.S. government, we, the world, we will not be successful unless we are also investing in the components of their global health response, of local health, of community health responses that many people consider humanitarian. And so I think the challenge for PEPFAR and the challenge for the global health security agenda is to achieve convergence. And I think that that's not a given right now. I think that we have to understand what it means to build health systems that are resilient and responsive and rights-based, because those are the health systems that people will access when they're emergent pathogens. Those are the systems that will pick up emergent pathogens. If people don't trust a clinic, they're not going to come in. They're not going to get diagnosed. I mean, you know, all of these cascades, you know, many of them stop if you have functioning health system. And my hope is that there's convergence. My additional hope is that PEPFAR and the Global Fund, that Global Fund replenishment happens in the U.S., that requests for increased U.S. contribution are met. That's their advocacy requests. And same for PEPFAR, because we know, we know how much ground we have lost in AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, and many other issues, unplanned pregnancies, gender-based violence, HIV-related stigma, homophobia, you know, as a result of, of COVID. And so my, my hope is that we find convergence and that we find sustained support for the work that started so many years ago. Yeah, well, there's still a lot of work to be done, so I completely agree with you on those two points. So finally, what's next on your agenda? Are you planning another book on global health or something entirely different? You know, I think you're going to have to watch the space. <laughs> I think that we are at the beginning of something in terms of a globally mobilized moment around pandemic preparedness that is not unlike the global mobilization around treating HIV in Africa that led me to move to Uganda. And that's where I found my story. And so I've got my eyes out. Certainly, there's plenty of attention now to pandemic preparedness and response. And I think if, you know, if you can find the vantage point that you found in Uganda to help make sense of what's happening with, uh, with PPR or as uh, the new acronym of the day, that'll be good for everybody. We'll have a much clearer understanding of what needs to get done. It's been a fascinating conversation. I really want to thank you for, for taking the time. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you too. Thank you for listening to AIDS Existential Moment. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.